I started as an independent management consultant uh, just to, to have some cash to start an endeavor and then was uh, looking for what to do, really. And I spent uh, the first year just on building sort of the basics of the business uh, and started saving from, from what I could make there. And then I uh, met with one of my co-founders of Cerebru through a former colleague, mm-hmm. incidentally was uh, his wife. Um, and he is a professor at the University of Copenhagen and looking to somehow build a business based uh, on machine learning and medical imaging mm-hmm. to help clinical practice and radiology. Welcome back to Deep Tech Stories, the podcast making creators, entrepreneurs and idealists in the deep tech space accessible and pulling the tech from the lab into the real world. My name is Philip Stürmer, and in this first part of this episode of Deep Tech Stories, you will hear the story of how Robert Lauritsen and his team at Cerebrio are using AI to reach superhuman performance in medical imaging, transforming the way doctors see the human body. Have you ever lied inside an MRI machine, listened to loud buzzing and thumping sounds, wondering what's going on outside? It's a strange experience, lying there, helpless relying on the machine to give doctors a glimpse inside your body. But despite all of that hack, in the end, the doctors still need to interpret that glimpse by themselves, often with the help of a radiologist, which takes time and resources. So it seems like it's the perfect task to automate and reach superhuman performance using machine learning, right? That's exactly what Robert Lauritsen and his co-founders at Cerebrio thought as well. Robert himself has a long entrepreneurial history, which prepared him perfectly for revolutionizing medical imaging techniques, starting all the way back during high school. So I had my own company during high school uh, doing, oh my God, that's a long time ago. (laughs) I helped out with various computer related problems or or, uh, support and also did work in the printing industry when that was a thing, editing on computers, sort of visuals for commercials and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm making it all compliant. And then you, it was ad hoc, technical work, whatever I could get my hands on. Then you picked it up during school somehow? Yeah, or? yeah exactly. Yeah. So I just yeah, had something, created my own job. I mean, I was also employed in various yeah. uh, fashions. I also was employed uh, doing... Uh, in the day, Apple Macintosh installations mm-hmm. for businesses, uh, stuff like that. My, it, was, it was the good old days of floppy disks, <laughs> floppy disk installs. No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm that old. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was so effectively, I've always sort of been working with some sort of technology. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it started actually all the way back in high school. Because yeah. I said on your LinkedIn profile it was for dental clinics. Yeah, then then uh, that was, but that was actually slightly after. That was during my. So I did I did uh, during my study in the university. I was also working both uh, in a in a sort of startup, a technology startup, where we made the battery chargers, um, uh, where I was uh, developing software for battery charging, controlling our systems, and. 
And then I went independent. That transitioned into becoming a partner in another uh, IT service company and software development company. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I started working with uh, one of my old buddies uh, from school that was on the hardware side, electronics, to uh, to develop a solution for mobile dentistry. From a mobile dentistry? Mobile dentistry, so you could have a dental clinic in a backpack. Okay. Which is a combination of, of uh, software, uh, electronics, and, and sort of good old-fashioned hardware, because you need, uh, you know, high-power uh, drills mm-hmm. to perform, um, you know, dental surgery, whatever. And uh, and need to put it into uh, to a device that is modular, so you can have multiple support, multiple instruments. I mean, there are dozens of instruments and and dentistry yep. with different features, different capabilities, and need to be able to control those. And those were the days before all the nice, flashy, smart uh, devices and touchscreens, what have you. So so it was building effectively on my side. I was heading R and D, and which actually transitioned me out of uh, of my studies at the university and into just working with us. It was so fun. And developing sort of a medical device for dental industry. And I was running and I was sort of also heading the software development. So basically, back in the day, based on sort of uh, the recent introduction of Linux uh, operating system, the Unix variant, built a sort of little micro operating system for this device and, and, and developed all the controlling functionality to manage dental equipment. How did you learn all that? How did I learn all that? Writing operating systems. Uh, well, I'm particular I, for. Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, so, so that was learning by doing. I mean, obviously a lot of uh, self-study. I've always been uh, very much digging into and learning new stuff. So my technical interests started in my very youth. I was a VIC-20 user. Vic 20 was before Commodore 64, so so it was a 5K <laughs> memory unit and did sort of basic uh, programming uh, back in the day. Got into Amiga, got my first PC sort of uh, around high school and stuff like that. So I always been very interested in, in software and, and technology and quite self-learned. I was also during universities teaching software development mm-hmm. in some of the courses. The the sort of real startup but besides my independent was this dental dental equipment, yeah. But you did computer science during you know, yeah, it's computer yeah. science, yeah. And that was just the real start of of my entrepreneurial uh, desire to to create a difference and and falling in love with the life science sort of industry mm-hmm. per se because of the potential impact on healthcare. Did you choose the dental in the beginning just because it came along, or was there a well, it was actually my my friend. So uh, so he he was working with this, which and incidentally the same sort of founder and inventor as also the with the battery chargers. Mm-hmm. So I had in that early day, which was the high school time, connection uh, with them, and we became sort of uh, junior partners in this uh, endeavor to create a solution uh, yep. uh, based on some some a number of patents within sort of battery and charging, whatever modality. Uh, and, and modularity of this kind of technology, which makes it, which made it quite interesting to try to build a solution, a sort of a full featured solution. And it was in the 90s pre dot com, so there was a lot of frenzy about the opportunities of uh, going uh, viral on online sales and commercialization mm-hmm. and stuff. So, so but uh, but we did make you know a lot of I think we built 500 working units with uh, our some of our partners, which were making the hardware. Yep. and it's. And the electronics, etc. So, so, uh, and I did the, the 
to some extent, there was some level of commercialization, but it never really took off. When I left before, um, um, before that, I, I wanted to move into, and then I started my my career sort of in in pharma, um, leaving that, and that was sort of a, another independent contractor uh, job or jump to to get into to pharma. Yep. Uh, consulting pharma on on developing solutions, and that then moved into da- data warehousing and stuff like that. Uh, again, self learned. How did that work with pharma? Because as, as far as I know, they somewhat expect you to have uh, a PhD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously, so I was not doing. Uh, I was not making medicine. Yeah, I think right. So it was within uh, the IT systems or business applications. Okay data warehouses, stuff like that. So it's a lot about business processes and business process automation and support mm-hmm. solutions and combining information across to get an overview of what's going on and stuff like that. So a data warehouse was about you know, connecting uh, sales and, and marketing with uh, with uh, manufacturing yep. uh, and, and, and planning. So a lot of forecasting and planning solutions and stuff like that, which is about you know the backbone of, of uh, any larger industry. No. To make sure that you have an idea of how much you have to make at a given point in time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't does not necessarily require to have a PhD, um, but uh, but a good mind is uh, is of course necessary. But that was that was sort of where I started my corporate life back in the day, and then I moved from Bering to the Nordisk's IT company and in IT because I was on a joint project management training or sort of course. A couple of years where we did some extensive, I got this PMI certification, the certified project manager around the millennium, mm-hmm. uh, running quite substantial amounts of projects for years and could see that some of the projects there were quite exciting. And the opportunity of having, you know, many colleagues running larger projects than having sort of a lot of fragmented projects in a smaller company like Fairing. I mean, it's not that it's a small company, but it's like five people for all the, or it's eight people for all the yeah. <laughs> projects. So, so it's everyone is putting in a few hours a, a week on all the different projects. It's not very exciting. And, not and very efficient. Not very efficient either, but that's, you know, you have a... a Typical, typical uh, growth uh, issue with trying to build teams that can manage all the different expectations and demands from the, from the different business areas. Yep. Which was also one of the reasons why I moved on because I thought and I could see that the potential of working with a large corporation would be exciting. Uh, and ran some substantial uh, projects in that context, including sort of implementation of environmental monitoring systems across all manufacturing on a global scale, which of course is. Uh, huge endeavor and under the sort of, sort of most strict compliance regulations from FDA, etc. Mm-hmm. Did you notice any management changes in style? Certainly there was, there was a lot of changes there and I also uh, developed, I mean, I had had also previously management responsibilities. I moved in, specialized a little more in project management and then transitioned into what we call service management. To really transform uh, the company as part of the the independence uh, of daughter company or the subsidiary into a standalone sort of legal entity, mm-hmm. which was the the overall strategy, and part of that was actually building and transforming and developing the business into being a professional services uh, delivery company. So so that was an opportunity that I got in that context, which of course was really exciting because it was. It was it was adding on to the understanding of of changing things from A to B, which is sort of what project management is about, 
into into transforming and operationalizing sort of all all value adds and 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 providing a transparent and well functioning operational excellent uh, service organization and capability in a company which was really exciting to build and I helped build that as part of the journey before I moved into sort of senior management in the company with you know, assuming the classic budget and people responsibility of substantial parts of the teams and get like a new you picked all the necessary people and hard skills up on the way by yeah. learning and learning by doing yeah. obviously a lot of uh, a lot of sort of development on the line and and training and working with mentors and whatever mm -hmm. uh, to to make sure to to manage the development yep. but, but yes it was not a uh, school yeah <laughs> it was uh, learning on the job and i guess the last five years i had a few hundred employees uh, globally under my responsibility and 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 sort of refining and and transforming also some of how we delivered across you know moving around from india to china to eastern europe etc mm -hmm. but also coming to a point uh some years back with a longing uh to get back to entrepreneurial uh, work i did start some entrepreneurial uh, work in the company besides the transformations i've been through mm -hmm. and driving the company and which was oriented more towards building solutions building you know new ways of doing things uh, that could be productized and sold at a different scale than sort of a fee-for-service uh, approach uh, and ultimately decided to uh, to leave to start something else up uh, together with, uh, with someone else and, mm -hmm. uh, and and then met uh, through that what year was that this was back in so i left in 16. so you were in that company from the early 2000s uh, nearly 13 years Yep. Yeah, yeah, all the way through the financial crisis. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was a long, it was a long journey. I got three kids, and and you know, uh, had a slip disc and an operation and a lot of other stuff uh, along the way. But uh, but I, and and I think originally I had not intended to stay so stay so long. But I also had s several different jobs in the company, right, and moved around and developed quite a lot. So I I really had a, an exciting journey, but also could feel that if I was to go out and build something. Uh, myself, I needed to start pulling the plug. Uh, yep. Sort of uh, in the early forties, I started having those thoughts and and, and left there uh, in in sixteen. So I started and I really left without anything. I mean, I had no uh, idea. I had no. Uh, I just needed more time to reflect. Yep. Uh, so I I uh, I started as a independent management consultant. Uh, just to to have some cash to start an endeavor, and then was uh, looking for what to do, really. And I spent uh, the first year just on building sort of the basics of the business uh, and started saving from from what I could make there. And then I uh, met with one of my co-founders of Cerebru through a former colleague. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, was uh, his wife. Um, and he is a professor at the University of Copenhagen and looking to somehow build a business based uh, on machine learning and medical imaging mm -hmm. to help clinical practice and radiology uh, specifically. Why, uh, why was he looking for that? Well, he was looking for that because he had spent his entire life uh, on, <laughs> on building technology and designing and evolving science in a direction that, was, uh, that could provide utility. Mm -hmm. And medical imaging, uh, but had uh, had an endeavor for many years uh, within clinical research, uh, but could see that there was a burning platform in uh, in clinical practice. And 
point is it's still reasonably rare that a technical professor yeah. or a medicine wants to start a company. Yeah. Well, he had a company already, uh, but that was sort of not really moving anywhere. Uh, and he wanted some help with someone with a more sort of a industrial uh, expertise and experience and a broad set of skills, including also some commercial and business management expertise that he knew that he could not fully himself, uh, and he and his partners, because there were two other uh, now professors in computer science uh, that was part of the team, and yeah. then uh, who is now our CTO, his uh, his protege, PhD, and, and, and at that point in time, postdoc. So a really strong technical team with uh, decades of experience within machine learning, yeah. uh, sort of a, on a global scale, leading science front-end, front-end, uh, 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 level of science uh, and the University of Copenhagen being sort of, I think, number four rated at that time within AI and medical imaging on a global scale. So quite a strong capability yep. and all the all the expertise in the world within that, but with, with the need to balance that uh, in a in a co-founding uh, setup with, with someone on the more business side of things. So at first I actually did think it was kind of interesting and it could be something I would pick up on, but he got back to me a few months later and, and then we, we got kind of excited and I met actually a co-founder, which was uh, which was great because I spent a day with him workshopping on on some of the dilemmas and trying to figure out what, what we could do and mm-hmm. that kind of capability and, and what the problem was. What, what were the dilemmas? Well, I mean, the, so the overarching dilemma is 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 the extreme growing of demand within medical imaging, so radiology and diagnostic imaging, uh, like so it's like X-ray, PET scan, X-ray, MRI. head, MRI, CT, whatever, uh, which is growing so fast uh, that uh, that the volume of work is is outgrowing uh, capacity by nearly ten percent per year, and has been doing that for twenty years. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we all know what our work week looks like. Just add, uh, you know, three hours per per week uh, every year yeah. to your workload. So the workload was driving burnout and error rates up, um, and it just seemed that there, there was there was there was a core problem that mm-hmm. most likely could be helped and benefited by technology. Yeah. And it did not seem, although there was quite a number of companies working in the space. It looked like uh, in the landscape that the competitive landscape was focusing very much on, uh, because of coming from research, focusing very much on biomarker quantification and stuff like that, because that's sort of the the research dilemma being focused most on, I think, in science. And what depends with the biomarker quantification? So it's like um, a volume of a segment in the brain, a uh, longitudinal assessment, uh, which could be indication of atrophy, stuff that is then useful uh, to see whether or not a patient has a specific pathology or condition that can or cannot be treated. Okay. Um, uh, so, so the size of a tumor, uh, the size of the count of something, uh, <laughs> something that you can somehow in imaging uh, scientifically uh, contest about, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, focus on that, which is all about post-processing. And effectively, although we started in that space, really we pivoted within a few weeks uh, into what we're doing now, which is focusing uh, intently on uh, automating workflows. So building building a platform? So, so building a platform. So effectively, uh, well, I guess a platform sounds kind of corny because there's so many that are building a platform. I think <laughs> our approach is really uh, different to the extent that we move upstream Instead of focusing on post-processing and, 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 and providing these kind of biomarkers, 
or some sort of quantification uh, mm -hmm. volumetrics uh, that we move upstream to the earliest point where data is created or accessible and to derive and prognose uh, whether or not uh, a certain condition would warrant uh, a different workflow than had been conditioned by symptoms or whatever the input was to radiology. And this is, this is more or less the background that I have right, with service and operational excellence because effectively hospitals are production. Mm -hmm. right, so they're looking at how can they operationally be excellent in what they do and as efficient as possible, uh, which is you know, inspired by processes that like from lean frameworks and others uh, from manufacturing, which is about uh, removing waste and improving quality uh, at every single step in a given process. And there, it always makes time. It just like you know, trying to do quality checks and testing after you've gone through an entire R and D lifecycle is really expensive. It's always good to bring decisions and front load questions where possible, but it requires information. So the concept and the idea of what we do is really when information is available, which means when the first images are reconstructed by the scanner, is there any new information in that that would warrant that we do something different than based on the basic symptoms? Right, so you different in the sense of a different, uh, a different diagnostic method. Exactly, a different diagnostic method, which is the imaging procedure. Right. So, so you might get, you might go to your GP with a headache. It has been severe. It could be chronic, or asymmetric, whatever. But nobody really knows. It could be a gazillion things. Mm -hmm. Right. And it could also not be pathology. I mean, and at least not something we can detect and classify at this point. But then uh, your GP would most likely reference you to the hospital if it if it found that it is of concern, or you could have patient history with uh, whatever that that you know, of migraine in your family or something else that would that could be something dangerous, or it could be an age where it's dangerous or whatever. So eventually you might get up, uh, end up in an MRI scanner. Mm -hmm. But today uh, that kind of sort of routine MRI would want to rule out quite a lot of stuff which require very specific imaging procedures, which quite often are now stacked and include contrast and all sorts of stuff, which will render you sort of uh, spending at least 30 minutes or even more uh, typically in the MRI scanner and being pumped with chemicals. Yep. And the idea of what we're doing is effectively, because the minority of cases you actually have pathology, right? you don't have to have something, but if it's there, it could be quite severe, it could be critical, it could be even acute like a stroke. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is looking at if we have enough data within the first few minutes that is more specific than just a headache with whatever symptom, then let's look at that data at that point in time and be more specific and personalize the imaging output okay. based on what we see early on. And alert the healthcare practitioners if we see something that could be dangerous that would require their more acute uh, attention and prioritization of what, what's going on in the scanner. So How do you make sure that you're not missing anything? So we, like any other technology or even humans, we can miss stuff. Uh, so we're not automating the diagnosis. What we're doing is looking at, and there's not enough information to, to make a diagnosis. That's why you actually add the additional images, not an imaging procedure. But what we're looking at is how can we go from a routine brain uh, protocol or something that sort of like scans everything into something where we can detect, see, you know, is it a vascular condition? Could it be a stroke, a hemorrhage, a tumor, or some other significant lesion that would warrant a different imaging procedure? Mm -hmm. So if the procedures could change and provide better information to reduce recalls and getting it right the first time, this is a value. 
And if we can simplify the operation of that, because today this is a manual uh, thing that, that advanced MRI technologists that are operating the procedure, that performing the uh, image acquisition, that they sometimes detect something, sometimes don't. And if they do, they call the radiologist and they do that like you know, several times an, an hour, uh, no, maybe 10 times an hour, they call the radiologists. So there's a lot of interruptions, a lot of waste going on in the system. If we can provide something similar quite fast early on, we could reduce the interruptions, reduce the the error rate of uh, mis-imaging or over-imaging. No. That's, that's sort of the intent. Ultimately, when doing that across all significant pathology, the hype accuracy, this is the sort of long-term direction we're going at. Yes. Then, then we can automate the workflow and become less and less dependent on the skill set of the operator and less and less dependent on having the right you know, advanced subspecialized neuroradiologist available for all scans, but spend more time on the on those patients and faster with those patients that have critical findings. So the idea here is to improve the quality of the examination procedure, be more efficient uh, in the use of specialized competencies. And this mm -hmm. is this is what operational excellence is all about. Right? But we're using technology and enhancing uh, the scanners with this kind of approach. So, you know, putting it in a cartoon fashion, we're making 50 years of advanced MRI equipment from thumb scanners into smart scanners that can help the clinical process and then improve the quality of the medical procedures. Yep. And then the three sat down with your co-founders, the two professors and the back then postdoc. Yeah. Went through all of this. Yeah. That's what we spent the last four years on. <laughs> so we created the company in 18. Um, I found uh, someone who wanted to invest. I put in whatever I had scraped from from being a management consultant for a year. Um, and, uh, and we started the company with a six-month runway. Thank you so much for listening to Deep Tech Stories. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Deep Tech Stories wherever you listen to your podcasts or follow me on Twitter. You'll be hearing back from me in two weeks when we finally dive into the building process of Cerebrio and the data nightmare Robert experienced with GDPR and patient data.